Let us now read the text for this morning's worship service, which is 1 Kings 17, verse 17 through 24. Some time later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought tragedy also upon this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. We will sing after the sermon from Psalm 105, the stanzas 6, 7, and 8. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, It is wonderful to be an office bearer. That is why Paul also says in his letter to Timothy that he who sets his heart on being an overseer desires a noble task, 1 Timothy 3 verse 1. But it's not always easy, for then you also expose yourself to criticism. As an office bearer, you stand out from the rest and become a lightning rod. You will attract both praise and criticism. It's not hard to take praise, but criticism is something else that can be hard and demoralizing, especially when you receive criticism for trying to do good. And that's also what Elijah found. He truly was a man of God. He was eager to do good and to be God's mouthpiece. Israel was in the grip of Satan and he had to And Israel had to be brought back on the right path, or else the Israelites would be lost. They would be under the condemnation of the Lord God, just like the heathen nations. Israel had to come to repentance, and especially especially Israel's king, Ahab. And so, as a warning, Elijah proclaims that there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years, except at his word. But it's not a popular message. On the contrary, it makes Ahab very angry. That often happens when an office bearer has to come with warnings to those who are going astray. Because of our sinful nature, we do not like that. We don't like to be thought of as being in the wrong. We do not like others to interfere in our lives. When an office bearer comes with the truth, then we may become angry. 
especially if we are unrepentant and want to continue to go along the same path. That was certainly the case with Ahab. He was very angry at the words of Elijah, and therefore Elijah had to go into hiding. First he hid in the Kareth ravine east of the Jordan. There the Lord, in a miraculous way, provided him with drink and food by enabling him to drink from the brook and sending him ravens to feed him. Then the Lord God sent him to Zarephath in the heathen country of Sidon. He sent him to a starving widow and her son. He also performed a miracle there. All that the widow had was a jar of flour and a jug of oil. But the Lord God made sure that the jar of flour was not used up and that the jug of oil did not run dry. She was prepared at that point to die together with her son. She was resigned to the fact that she would starve to death. But then the Lord God proves himself to be the God of life. In a miraculous way, he provides for her and her son and for Elijah. She had no choice at this point to admit that this was a miracle from God, the God of Israel. There was no doubt in her mind. But now in our text, we see that the Lord God not only gives life, but he also takes life. He takes the life of her son. And that makes her angry and bitter. First, the Lord made sure that she is kept alive and her son, but now death enters the picture, the death of her son. How can the Lord, the God of Israel, do that to her? She is confused and angry, and she lashes out at Elijah. She accuses him of being judgmental and arrogant, for she accuses him of reminding her of her sin. Her dispute, of course, is actually with the Lord God, for he is the one who took the life of the boy. Elijah is only his mouthpiece, his messenger. But Elijah, of course, is a much easier target than the Lord. Now, what do you think that this woman's problem is? Well, the problem is that she lacks faith. She does not understand the ways of God. She, by accusing Elijah, she accuses the Lord God, and she does not respect the God of Israel. And therefore, she does not respect his messenger either. And so, how can Elijah get her to respect him in his office, and thereby also to respect the word of God? For if you do not respect the office bearer who comes with the word of God, then you reject God himself. And that's what we will deal with this morning. The theme is as follows. Respect the office bearer who comes with the truth of the word of God. And then we will see three things. We will see, first of all, the tension in God's word. Secondly, the authority of God's word. And then finally, the power of God's word. What a difference Elijah's presence made in the life of the widow and her son. At one time, there was nothing but doom and gloom. The land was doomed because of the drought. Crops could not grow. People, especially poor people who could not afford the rising prices of food, were dying of hunger. That was also the fate of the widow of Zarephath. Can you imagine being in a situation like that? She felt helpless. There was nothing she could do. 
She will have wondered why it was happening to her and to her son and also to her people. She will have wondered if they had done something wrong and that therefore the gods were against them. For the Sidonians, just like the other heathen nations around Israel, believed that your fate was in the hands of the capricious gods. They rewarded you and punished you according to the things that you have done, and you had to appease them through the various rituals and sacrifices. And maybe they didn't do enough for her, and so she wondered. But then suddenly everything changes, at least in regard to the widow and her son. Elijah appears out of nowhere and he gives her hope and life. Because of him, there's once again food on the table. She understands that this came about because the man was a man of God, a man of the God of Israel. At least that God smiled favorably upon her and her son. He had given her and her son their lives back. He had given her hope and security and peace. Elijah once again brought joy into her home. And he befriended her and her son. He was kind to her and treated her with respect. And then things changed again. Her son died. It was only a brief illness. The one day he is healthy and vibrant. And the next day he's dead. And she right away perceived that this has everything to do with Elijah and the God of Israel. It was his doing. And so she blames Elijah and says to him, in effect, if you had not been here, the child would not have died. She was full of bitterness and anger. She had been promised life, but instead she received death. She thought that God was rewarding her for her obedience and making a meal for this man of God. For she did this even though it was, as far as she knew, from the last flower and from the last oil. But now what does she receive instead? She receives punishment. At least that's how she sees it from her perspective. For that is the kind of theology that she has been brought up with. That is the theology of the heathens. That's how the gods of the heathens deal with the people. And now she translates that same kind of thinking to the God of Israel. She comes to the conclusion that God's word is unreliable and untrue. And she identifies God with Elijah, rightly so. For Elijah did come in the name of the Lord, and he did make the Lord's name known to her. But Elijah himself is also in the dark. Elijah did not have an immediate answer either. He is perplexed as well. He does not know why God is doing this either. And indeed, that's often the way it is. We do not always have the answers as to why certain things happen. For we too at times wonder why certain things happen to others. And or happen to us and not to others. When a loved one dies, especially if it's unexpected, we wonder why us? What have we done to deserve this? Or when other calamities happen to us, an accident, financial ruin, poverty sexual or other abuse at the hands of loved ones, 
And then we grope for answers. Why? Why did that have to happen to me? And we don't have a direct answer from God. He leaves us in the dark. Or so it seems. That's the way it was for Elijah here. Even though Elijah was a prophet of God and an office bearer of his church, he did not have a direct or a specific answer either. And that's clear from what he said in his prayer to God. For he cried out to the Lord God asking him why he brought tragedy also upon this widow by causing her son to die. He was just as perplexed as the widow. But he does not ask what God has against him, like the widow. And you see, that's the difference between him and her. Elijah asks in faith. He cries out to God in faith. He seeks his answer with God because he knows that only with God, the God of Israel, who is the God of truth, will he find the answer. That's also what Job did, for example, in the midst of his many troubles. He continued to seek the Lord even though he did not know why the Lord was doing this to him. He continued to seek answers from him. He allowed himself to be led by the word of God as he continued to hang on to the promise of, promises of God, confessing in the midst of his calamity and misery that he knows that his Redeemer lives. In the midst of tragedy, we also can and are allowed uh, to ask God why these things happen to us. Even the Lord Jesus Christ himself cried out on the cross, why have you forsaken me? But he also asked in faith. He even knew exactly what the purpose God the Father had in having him hang on the cross. He knew that he had to die for the sins of the people. His question was designed to draw attention to his suffering. And that's the case here as well with Elijah. Elijah knows that the Lord God is a just God and that he deals with his children in compassion. He knows that he is not punishing anyone with this. It is the result of sin that these kinds of things happen. When adversity strikes, we may know that that happens because of the sin that we ourselves have brought into the world. But we also know that the Lord God will turn to our good whatever adversity he brings our way. How he will turn it to our good, that is not always immediately clear. It usually becomes clear later. That's also the case here. The Lord God had a specific purpose in taking the life of the son of the widow. That brings us to the second point, namely the authority of God's word. What purpose would God have in taking the life of the widow's son? It does seem odd and contradictory. First, he saves them through the miracle of the replenishing flour and oil, and then he brings about the death of the child. Well, from the text, God's purpose is clear. Look at what it says in verse 24. After Elijah revived the child, the widow exclaimed that now she is convinced that Elijah is a man of God and that the word of the Lord from his mouth is the truth. 
And that is the conclusion she was forced to come to. You see, up until this, she only believed in Elijah's God because of the sign. Because of the miracle that he performed every day by making sure that the flour and the oil would not be used up. That daily miracle was a sign of God's goodness and God's control over all things. It was a sign of his power and his majesty. But that sign was given for a purpose. It was given to make her understand something very important. Through this widow, the Lord wanted to show Israel and all believers that God's miracles have a purpose. For a sign points to something. We may not depend, therefore, on the sign itself, but on what it signifies, on what it points to. Israel had been given many signs from God. The Lord God had performed many miracles among them. And, you, and, and yet, look at what happened. They were no longer, by and large, serving the Lord. For example, the Lord God gave the ark of the covenant as a sign of his presence. And so what did they do? Well, they removed the ark from the holy of holiest and they took it long in their battle against the Philistines. They depended on that sign and not on God himself. And how the Lord God punished them for this. For they did not realize the significance of the sign. That sign of God's presence was meant for them to lead holy lives. And for, for them to lead lives that show that they trust in the Lord God, who is able to save them from destruction, from Satan, from sin. The same thing we find today. There are also those who make more of the sign of God's presence than they are supposed to. Take the sign in the seal of baptism as an example. That is also a sign of God's presence and his benevolence towards us. It signifies that God is true to his promises. It signifies that we are his children and that he loves us. And yet we can become complacent and think that because we have the sign and the seal on our foreheads and are God's children, that therefore we don't have to worry so much about how we live. We're his children anyway. And we belong to the true church. And so we can relax and live like the world a little bit. We can have the best of both worlds. What can happen to us? We can do whatever we want with our possessions and live like the world. As long as we go to church and do all those other kinds of things that belongs to belonging to a church, then it doesn't really matter all that much what we do. The widow believed in God only because of the miracle, because of the sign. And it is for that reason that the Lord God had to interfere in her life. She had to come to true faith. She could not just believe in God because of the sign that he gave to her of his presence, of his goodness. No, she had to go beyond that. She had to believe in the real thing. She had to believe in God himself. She had to believe that everything is in God's control, both life and death, and that he is in control of her life, and that she must honor and give glory to his name in all circumstances of life. She had to understand how God deals with his people, for he does not act in a capricious, whimsical way, 
He does not punish us, as the psalm says, and as we also sang together when we sang from Psalm 104, according to our transgressions. He is a merciful God. He is a loving God, a God who wants to lead us to the truth. Our lives, brothers and sisters, are temporary. It's like a breath. And the Lord God wants us to realize that. And therefore, we have to put our trust in God. And at this point, that widow had no inkling yet of these things. As I said, she believed in God only because of the miracle. But as soon as calamity struck, she was confused and angry. Because she had the wrong view of God. And therefore, she also had the wrong view of God's prophet. She did not yet fully grasp the power of God and the power of his word spoken through the prophet who comes with the truth of God. We come to the third point. As I said, Elijah himself was perplexed as to why God did what he did. But he knew that the Lord God had a specific purpose with the death of the boy, for he trusted God. And he also knew that he had to continue to put his trust in the Lord God And so what did he do? He goes into action and he takes the boy into the upper room where he was staying. And he laid the boy on his bed. And then he prayed to the Lord. He implores him to let the boy's life return to him by stretching himself out on the boy three times. It is as if he wills his own life to flow into the dead body of the boy. But Elijah knows that only God can put breath back into the boy's body. And there is no doubt that at this point the boy is truly dead. For the Hebrew literally says that no breath remained in the body. The Lord hears Elijah's cry for help. He grants him his wish, and life returns to the boy. It's a great moment. It's a moment of triumph. This is the first time in the history of God's people that someone was actually brought back from death to life. And the Lord God performed this miracle by means of the office that he had established. While he brought about the death of the child directly without using any office bearer, In this case, he uses the prophet Elijah to restore life. For it was clear that this was a direct answer to Elijah's prayer. Why did the Lord do that? Why did he use Elijah to restore life? Well, first of all, so that the widow could affirm not only the truth of God, but also the truth of the words spoken by Elijah. It was to make Elijah effective in her eyes. She had to see him as an instrument in God's hand. She had to know that God speaks through him. And that therefore he is very special. And that is also what the nation Israel had to know. For that's what it is all about. It is an appeal to Israel. For this is also a sign and a seal to God's nation. Israel had to know that Elijah is a man of God who comes with the word of God, who comes with his authority, with his power. Office bearers are important instruments in God's hand to proclaim God's word, to come with the truth. 
That's also important to remember with regard to the office bearers that we have in front of us this morning who are about to enter their office. Oh, sure, they are mere men, they are sinful men, but so was Elijah. And it says about Elijah in James 5, verse 17, that Elijah was a man just like us. He was not any different. In other words, he did not have any more power than anyone else. He was just as sinful as everybody else. But do you know what made Elijah so special? Elijah was a man of prayer. He believed in the power of prayer. It was only for that reason that God granted him his wish. Without prayer, Elijah could not have been effective, as effective as he was. And that's true for the office bearers as well. These office bearers are also mere men. They're not any different from any of us. They're not more worthy, less sinful, more deserving. But because of God's power and because God wants to use them as instruments in his hand, they are very important. They are essential in the life of the church. For they too can come to you with the word of God. They too can speak about the words of life when they come into your homes for their visits and as they counsel you, as they speak to you about the things that bother you in your life, as you are dealing with health problems and other problems. They can come with the word of God. And you may say, but with Elijah we could see direct result. God performed a miracle when he prayed. He brought a boy from death to life. We couldn't do that. Indeed, it is true that we may not necessarily expect the exact same result. Elijah worked at the time when God's word was scarce. At the time, they did not have the complete Bible. God spoke to his people through the prophets. But we have something much richer now. We have the complete word of God. And therefore, we do not have to, uh, to perform obvious signs or miracles. And ultimately, it is not the miracles that bring people to faith. We see that throughout the Old Testament. No, as a matter of fact, miracles can sometimes stand in the way. For as we saw, it can make people complacent. And actually, miracles happen every day. The way that God sustains life and creates life is miraculous. The way that creation is put together is totally awesome. We see God's power and majesty and beauty all around us. Look at the growth that we see around us. Most people are blind to these things. And it is the office bearer who has to make them open their eyes to the fact that God is alive. And that he is involved in his creation. And that he is involved especially in his people. Oh sure this world is marred by sin and the effects of sin. But God's love and his care for creation is still so obvious. For now we live after the, complete, after the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ over sin and death. And we know that the final manifestation of his victory is just around the corner. For you see, the Lord Jesus is going to come again. And we are so much richer than the Old Testament believer. For now an office bearer can point to the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ over sin, over the effects of sin. 
the author of the letter to the Hebrews says in chapter 2 verse 14 that the Lord Jesus Christ shared in our humanity and there it comes so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power over death that is the devil and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death office bearers come with the word of life they may speak to the people about the fact that God has created life and that he also renews life. And that applies not only to physical life but also to an especially spiritual life. We're surrounded by death. Yesterday we buried one of our loved ones. The great hope that you and I may come with is that God gives life to those who believe. How beautiful are the feet of those who come with good news. That doesn't just apply to me as your minister. That applies to these office bearers as well. You too may be an instrument in God's hand to bring about renewed spiritual life. Those people who are bogged down in their sins and who have difficulty clawing their way out of the deep hole that they have dug for themselves, you, with God's word, can lift them up and renew them with the word of God. The task of an office bearer is a wonderful task. But don't think that you'll always be appreciated. Don't think that you won't be met with opposition at times. That you won't be criticized. People do not always want to hear the truth. Bringing someone from death to life means that at times you also have to warn and exhort and apply discipline. As an office bearer, you have to walk a straight line. You're not in office to please people, first of all, but to please the Lord your God. At all times, you have to be focused on God's word and his promises, just like Elijah did. And then the Lord God will also bless your ministry. Don't be discouraged by the naysayers, the complainers, the negative people, by those who give you your condolences because you have been chosen as an office bearer. No, you may be congratulated, congratulated that God wants to use you as an instrument in his hand to make the life in this congregation flourish. And the Lord God wants you to be diligent in the way that you apply his word. For we are sinful people and we need to be directed and redirected by the word of God. For sometimes office bearers make mistakes and then they have to get back on the right path. Office bearers are not always as tactful and considerate as they should be, perhaps. But love covers a multitude of sins. God loves his people. And he also wants us to love one another. He showed his love through Elijah. He wanted the people to live. And therefore, he took drastic measures in order to get the people's attention. He gave them drought to bring them on their knees. But after drought comes rain, life. And that's what he gives to his people who listen to him and to those whom he sends. Amen.